Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The God Who Isn't. It's based upon the lectionary readings for October 11th, 2020. Sometimes, the most honest response to a story from scripture is regret. Regret, repentance, and reorientation. This is especially true of Bible stories we inherit from other people, stories that someone else hands to us, wrapped in layers of interpretation so thick we can't tell where the interpretation ends and the story begins. To put this another way, sometimes we need to unsee a biblical text before we can see it. New Testament scholar Amy Jo Levine argues that if religion is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, then Jesus' parables are meant to do the latter. If we read them and find ourselves unprovoked, then we aren't really seeing them. Jesus was no teller of cozy bedtime stories. His parables are designed to show us things we don't want to see. This week's parable of a wedding banquet gone awry is no exception. No effort to soften its jagged edges will suffice. It is a harsh, hyperbolic story steeped in violence. If someone were to make it into a movie, the genre would be horror. And yet for centuries, we Christians have attempted to soften and sanitize this brutal story. Most often we've done so by flattening the parable into allegory. In the rendering I inherited as a child, the king in the parable is God, the son slash bridegroom is Jesus, the wedding feast is the messianic banquet, the rejected and or murdered slaves are the Old Testament prophets, and the A-list guests who refuse to attend the wedding are God's chosen people, the Israelites. And the B-listers, those last-minute guests who come in off the streets to fill the banquet hall instead, those folks are us, the Gentiles. There's no question about it, this is a convenient interpretation. For us, I mean. No discomfort or affliction to speak of, just one heck of a party. What could be better? The snobs who renege on their RSVPs get their comeuppance. They die. But we who have the good sense to say yes to the king end up snug and cozy in his palace, feasting on wine and caviar while the world burns. This is the interpretation I grew up with, and for a long time I saw no problems with it. In fact, the interpretation was so airtight it prevented me from accessing the actual parable at all. I glossed right over the extremity of its violence and the cartoonish quality of its plot. I reveled in its implicit judgment of those other people who stupidly reject the king's invitation and automatically placed myself in the category of those who flocked to the wedding feast. Fancy garb at the ready. I grieve this reading now, and I repent of it. I repent of the way it automatically privileges me, my obedience, my good choices, my reward. I repent of the callous acceptance of vindictiveness, violence, and cruelty at its heart. And I repent of the anti-Semitism it excuses in the name of Christian triumph. Think about it. Once again, in this traditional interpretation of the story, the Jewish people get everything wrong, lose their coveted place on God's A-list, and take a back seat to the more faithful and more deserving Gentile church. What a dangerous and wounding angle on the story, an angle that participates in the long, bloody history of the church's abusive relationship with the Jewish people from whom we come. But there's something else to repent of in the traditional reading of the story, namely its false and terrifying depiction of God. 
As Christ's followers, do we really believe in a God as petty, vengeful, hot-headed, and thin-skinned as the king in this parable? A God who burns an entire city to the ground in order to appease his wounded ego? A God who forces people to celebrate his son's marriage while his armies wreak destruction right outside? A God who casts an impoverished guest into the outer darkness for reasons the guest absolutely can't control? Obviously, the answer is no. Of course we don't believe in a God as monstrous as that. Do we? I know that I'm pushing hard against tradition, but the reading I inherited will not hold if we begin with the core commitment to the radical grace, mercy, hospitality, and sacrificial love of God. I mean, seriously? Invited guests who would rather commit murder than attend their sovereign's royal wedding? How unpopular and horrid a sovereign. Partygoers who have no choice but to carry on eating, drinking, dancing, and celebrating while their city burns to the ground? A king who invites a homeless guy into his palace and then banishes him for lacking formal wear? Honestly, why do we try to make this version of the story okay when it isn't okay? I wonder now if Jesus tells the parable in such an extreme and offensive way precisely because we do believe in a God as harsh as the king who turns his armies loose on his own people, and we need the help of hyperbole in order to recognize it. Is it possible that Jesus is offering us a critical description of how God's kingdom is often depicted by God's own followers? What if the king in the parable isn't God at all? What if the king is what we project onto God? What if the king embodies everything we've learned to associate with divine power and authority from watching other all-too-human kings and rulers? Kings like Herod, conquerors like the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, Leaders in our own time and place who exercise their authority in abusive, violent ways, compelling their followers to gleefully celebrate in circumstances that call for lament. Do we, consciously or not, present to the world a God who is easily offended, easily displeased, easily dishonored? A God whose holiness rests on the foundation of a righteous and even violent anger? A God whose need to save face finally trumps his own graciousness and hospitality? a God whose invitation to salvation has strings attached. It's easy enough to say, no, we don't. Yet we are surrounded by people who have been victimized by brutal religion, many of them bludgeoned by the Christian depiction of a God who is angry, withholding, transactional, and perfectionistic. Some of us have friends or family members who have experienced the church as petty, ungenerous, and judgmental. Most of us know Christians so exclusionary in their faith practice that we dare not approach them. Some of us still carry deep wounds from the years or decades we spent appeasing the king we mistook for God. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son, Jesus says, by way of introduction to his parable. Okay, what will happen if we take him at his word? What might we learn if we attempt an honest comparison between God's coming kingdom and our current one? Are our tables open to all who come, and does our love extend to those who initially refuse our invitation? Are we willing to extend a welcome to those who show up unprepared, unwashed, unkept? Do we take offense when people shy away from our banquet, or do we listen as they explain why our invitation strikes them as unappealing or frightening? Do we really want to open our arms wide, or do we have a secret stake in seeing some people end up in the outer darkness? In the end, Are we known for our impeccable honor or for our scandalous hospitality? I began with repentance and now turn to reorientation. 
That is, I turned to the possibility of seeing this parable with new eyes, eyes eager for good news, not the mingy good news that secures my salvation and my comfort at the expense of others' bodies and souls, but rather the good news of the gospel that is inclusive, disruptive, radical, and earth-shattering, the good news that centers on the Jesus I know and love. What would it look like for Jesus and his good news to be in this parable? Here's one possibility. What if the God figure in this parable is the one guest who refuses to accept the terms of the tyrannical king? The one guest who decides not to wear the robe of forced celebration and coerced hilarity? The one guest whose silent resistance leaves the king himself speechless and brings the whole sham feast to a thundering halt? The one brave guest who decides he'd rather be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness of Gethsemane, Calvary, the cross, and the grave than accept the authority of a violent, loveless sovereign. Yes, it's disturbing, but stay with it for a minute. What would change for you if Jesus was the unrobed guest and not the furious king in this story? How would you have to change to welcome such a guest, to honor such a guest, to accompany such a guest? What robes of privilege, power, wealth, empire, location, and complicity would you have to refuse to wear? What holy rebuke would you have to find the courage to embody when the king demands your cheery presence at his table? What feasts would you have to forego in order to follow the unrobed dissenter when he is cast into the darkness, bound and broken for the sake of love? The parables of Jesus are meant to afflict the comfortable. The parables are meant to show us who God is and who God isn't. So, may we embrace a loving God who is rather than the vindictive God who isn't. May we choose affliction over apathy even when it costs us. May we refuse sham banquets while our cities burn and our streets run with blood. May we always reject the invitations of heartless kings. And may we, like Christ the unrobed guest, disarm all powers that bind God's children and render the world's oppressors speechless in his name. For books this week, Dan reviews On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, a novel by Ocean Vuong. <clears throat> As I write, the Vietnamese-American poet and essayist Ocean Vuong is only 31, but his three books have already earned him a dozen literary awards that include the Pushcart Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant. This is his first novel, but it's clearly autobiographical. Vuong's grandmother was a peasant who married a white American soldier during the war. His family fled Vietnam and found their way to an apartment in Hartford, Connecticut, where he was raised by his mother, a manicurist, and grandmother. Vong is also openly gay. So in his real life and in this novel, there are several complicated layers that Vong explores through the narrative device of a letter from a son named Little Dog to his illiterate ma. Immigration is inherently complicated, but especially so when you land in a rust belt town like Hartford, where you are often assumed to be Latino. Do I look like a real American? asks Little Dog. He experiences abuse at home from both his mother and grandmother and at school from redneck bullies. His grandmother, Lan, is schizophrenic, while his monster of a mother, Rose, works long hours stooped over at a nail salon, aching, toxic, and underpaid. Little Dog runs away from home when he is ten and discovers cocaine at the age of fourteen. The family history behind all this is the long shadow of the Vietnam War. The war is still inside you, little dog tells Lan. 
These memories to his mother are of pain, long-term trauma, and alienation. There's so many things I want to tell you, Ma. I was once foolish enough to believe knowledge would clarify, but some things are so gauzed behind layers of syntax and semantics, behind days and hours, names forgotten, salvaged and shed, that simply knowing the wound exists does nothing to reveal it. And yet, as his book title suggests, there is beauty. At the end of this novel, little dog tells his mother, yes, there was a war. Yes, we came from its epicenter. In that war, a woman gifted herself a new name, Lon. In that naming, claimed herself beautiful, then made that beauty into something worth keeping. From that, a daughter was born, and from that daughter, a son. All this time, I told myself we were born from war. But I was wrong, Ma. We were born from beauty. I know, Ma, this book is marked by death, by debts. But that is only to say it is a book of life, of living. For films this week, Dan reviews Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. The first 40 minutes of this film tell the story of the co-director, Jim Lebrecht, who was born with spina bifida, but who was also blessed with an extroverted personality of optimism and determination. The movie opens in 1971, when the 15-year-old Lebrecht spent a summer at Camp Jeanette, which was run by a bunch of hippies in the Catskills of New York, and designed specifically for people with all sorts of severe disabilities. The black-and-white films and photos of the counselors and campers back then are nostalgic, incredibly inspirational, and for those who were there, empowering. In many ways, Camp Jeanette was a social experiment that was a byproduct of the times. The last 70 minutes of the film are equally inspirational and overtly political. This part tells the story of the civil rights movement for the 40 million Americans with disabilities that grew partly out of Camp Jeanette, and that was led by the indomitable Judy Human. It was a long uphill battle for people who were routinely discriminated against in almost every aspect of ordinary daily life, transportation, education, employment, health care, and even especially simple access. The film ends with the 1990s signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act by President George Bush and thus its 30th anniversary in 2020, and with a haunting question by human. Why should I feel fully satisfied just because now I can go to a public bathroom without hindrance? Crip Camp won the Audience Award at Sundance 2020. And lastly, for poems this week, Further Possible Answers to Prayer by Scott Cairns. And as for hell, your hell is deep chagrin, a deeply wrenching circumstance in which the soul no longer manages to skirt what's what. The fire? Well, that rich searing is my tenderness as felt by all who have for so long worked to mute my tenderness. The only demons that in play will be the ones you've carried with you, the cohort you have wed and fed whose offspring you have borne. Acute chagrin, which the soul, so long as she is willing, so long as she is not absolutely dead, may one day shed. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for October 11th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.